Hello, fellow space enthusiasts, and welcome back to another episode of The Art of Space Engineering, as we continue our discussion with Dr. Daniel White on electric propulsion. As a quick refresher on what we've covered so far, part one introduced the subject as a whole, and it covered how these systems work and what engineers have to account for when designing them. Now, since this is a bit more of a technical conversation, I wanted to recap some of the fundamental details from part one to help you continue to understand what's going on in this episode. So on a very basic level, electric propulsion systems, or EP as you'll hear it abbreviated, work by using electricity to produce thrust. Now there are a few different types of EP systems, but for this conversation we're only going to focus on hull thrusters and gridded ion thrusters. Now to recount what those are, in hull thrusters, a magnetic field is applied radially around the thruster to ionize a gas, which is our repellent, and typically this gas is xenon. An electric field is then generated perpendicular to that magnetic field, which accelerates the gas based on how much power is applied to the propulsion system. So this method is known as the Hall effect, and that's what gives the Hall thruster its name. Ion thrusters, on the other hand, create thrust by first ionizing the propellant and then accelerating those ions through two electrically biased grids. The first grid has a positive charge, and that's called the anode, and the second grid has a negative charge, that's called the cathode. Now, since these ions move from a positive charge to a negative one, they accelerate from the anode to the cathode in order to produce thrust. And then after exiting the cathode, electrons are then introduced to neutralize the gas and just help keep it moving. So that's a bit of a refresher on more of the specific details. In this episode, we will learn a lot more about the performance of these systems, along with how they are tested, lessons learned from Dr. White's experience, and a few neat material science applications, which you may not have thought about. So now that you've had a bit of a refresher, let's just dive right back into the interview and learn a lot more about EP. contingencies or protections do you have to build into these systems in order for them to, to be safe for space travel or, or even to just be a, more efficient? I'm not sure if that's a weird question. No, um, not at all. I mean, it's making me think about the problem in, in ways that I'm, I haven't in, in a long time. Hmm. Um, whenever you're, you're integrating on the spacecraft, I think the issue I think the, the question you're, that you're asking, the way I kind of digested in my head is, um, whenever you want to put EP on a spacecraft, how does that influence other subsystems? Is that kind yeah. of what you're asking? Yeah, or okay. like um, um, if there's like programming contingencies that you have to, to implement in order for them, I don't know. Um, um, am I trying to think about <laughs> this question? I'm not um, sure. Um, program contingencies, well, that makes me think of a story. Um, there was at one time um, a, a man uh, who, who owned a field and, and launched a um, geosynchronous communication satellite um, from his field. And uh, I think at some point, I'm a little fuzzy on some of the details, but at some point in, in trying to get to uh, geo, um, the uh, primary propulsion on the spacecraft failed and they used electric propulsion. Uh, to complete that boost up to geo. Mm -hmm. I think that story as a general chain of events has happened in human history. Okay. Uh, but, and, and I don't know what I'm supposed to, I don't know. So um, yeah, in terms of whenever I think of condition contingencies with EP, 
um, I want to uh, sell it as it is a uh, uh, not a contingency it's not creating problems in terms of contingency. Maybe it's creating solutions in terms of mm -hmm. contingency, right? It offers you uh, more options for changing the velocity of the spacecraft just mm -hmm. in, a, in a general way. Um, so yeah, um, there, are some, there are some things that we need to look for though uh, in, how, in terms of how it influences other subsystems. Um, a big one um, has to do with thermal. You're, whenever you uh, bolt an EP uh, system uh, right next to your, your NTO tank and your hull thruster and, and you start running it, yeah, you are going to blow your spacecraft up. I mean, that's not a great, that's not a great approach. Uh, so you need to have some thermal management uh, on hand for putting these things on spacecraft. In terms of the thermal thing, yeah, you've got to, you've got to have the hull thrusters, I mean, I don't want to say on a boom, but they've got to be thermally separated from the mm -hmm. spacecraft because they're a hostile thermal player. Uh, they don't play nicely on the thermal stage. Mm -hmm. And um, um, that's, that's one thing that you got to think about. Um, there are other issues that are operational issues. Uh, if you wanted to kind of think about different uh, constraints that EP places on the spacecraft, that's an interesting problem. Um, uh, there are um, power issues with how you point your solar arrays. Uh, for example, if you you know if you blow uh, the, the plume from a, a gridded ion thruster uh, on your solar array for a year or so as you're you're dawn and you're thrusting away from the sun. If you were to blow that on the uh, the solar array, you know, at, at some point during the mission, you're going to realize that you have sandblasted your solar array away, and you really shouldn't have done that. Um, so, so in terms of how you can point your thrust vector, um, that really influences some of the mission operations that you have to go through. I'm sorry if I'm using real world examples to uh, to illustrate funny stories. I really shouldn't do that because <laughs> it's not <laughs> funny to think about dawn eroding away its solar array, but. Uh, right. anyway, I'm sorry for that. It's just a limitation of the speaker. No, um, okay. So yeah, you get you get uh, uh, thrust vectoring problems that you're going to have to deal with. Um, there are also a lot of electrical um, uh, considerations that come with running something like a uh, um, a hull thruster, gridded ion thruster. A lot of those though flow down into the PPU, which I think of as kind of an entirely different brother to the hull thruster head that everybody sees on the cover of Vogue magazine. Right. The PPU and, is just the uh, the sister that nobody wants, or the brother that want, nobody wants to talk about. <laughs> so, um, uh, but they're they're all part of the same system. The PPU handles a lot of that, but man, it's a complex beast. So whenever you whenever you're thinking about the overall volume and weight of your supporting electronics, your bus electronics, gee, I mean, the thruster, you know, has some drawbacks there. It's it's going to be a more massy affair uh, sometimes, <clears throat> or a more complex affair maybe sometimes. The gridded ion thruster. Uh, if you're going to want to talk about putting one of those on the spacecraft, that's going to uh, compound it, uh, compound those problems maybe even further, uh, mm -hmm. because we've already discussed the issues use there. Okay, well, that makes sense, and that that answers yeah that answers that question very well. So thank thank you. Okay. Um, how how long do these systems usually last? Yeah. What is that based on? <laughs> um, there are two questions I think um, that, that you're that you're kind of looking for. Um, answering one question is how long do the systems usually last, and then the other question is how long can the systems last. Mm. Um, if, I'm, if I'm really interpreting your, your focus there, that's how I would like to answer that. Uh, how long do they last? Well, um, in the geo spacecraft industry, we're in a habit of, of giving these, these geocom satellites 25-year lifetimes. Um, what does that mean in terms of our hull thrusters or our gridded ion thrusters that we include on these spacecraft? Well. Um, we run out of propellant a long time before we run out of thruster life. Um, 
So for a 25 year mission, a geocom mission, uh, I would, I mean, I don't wanna, I don't wanna put the idea way out on a ledge, but I would say after year 25, you're probably, probably it doesn't ring around to year 25 and you just run out of gas, out of xenon gas. You probably still have an inventory there, a residual inventory. And the thruster hasn't worn out mm -hmm. uh, when you do finally run out of gas. So the thruster isn't gonna limit you um, on that. So how long do they last? I would say probably we're gonna start seeing lasting 30, 40 longer years. Um, how long can they last? That's a, a lot more interesting question for me. Um, if we want uh, to fly this notional gridded iron thruster that I, I, I mentioned to, to you and I were talking, um, if you wanted to fly that thing, it's gonna have to fire for tens of, of years. Um, I, I hesitate to even say that out loud, but yeah, I mean, you're talking hundreds of thousands of hours of operation is where we've got to scale these things to in order for them to realize their intrinsic potential. So uh, I almost feel like uh, gridded ion thrusters in terms of preserving their lives, but we've got these gridded ion thrusters which were born with all this great natural talent for driving us to high ISP. Now it's our job, the residual engineering that still needs to be done, needs to be done in areas like making sure gridded ion thrusters can last long enough to fit into, to, to enable the missions that they were sort of born to do. Um, uh, there are a myriad of reasons why gridded ion thrusters do eventually die. One that I am really in interested in, and, and probably the one I would say I know a little more about, uh, is how the grids erode. Um, it turns out that whenever we were mentioning a minute ago, uh, sandblasting your, your solar array uh, with, your, with your gridded ion thruster is not a good idea. Uh, it turns out that sandblaster analogy is not really a bad one. Uh, because whenever you've got those grids in the flow, so to speak, when they are plasma facing, any of your plasma facing components are essentially in, 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 you know, in harm's way. Um, they're being sandblasted and eroded away. Gridded mm -hmm. ion thruster optics design, um, and, and that's, that's kind of how we refer to uh, the, the grid assemblies on, on these gridded ion thrusters as, as their optics. Um, and they're comprised, by the way, those little holes we call apertures. Um, so the, uh, the design of uh, gridded ion thruster optics, I think, is, is uh, just absolutely one of the things that really gets me intellectually going. I mean, it, uh, I was able to, um, as a part of my graduate work, I, I worked with uh, Dr. Ira Katz at JPL over, over one summer. And uh, it was kind of a, a, kind of a, a wily tale, but um, I worked with him on um, uh, simulating uh, some gridded ion thruster optics for a thruster that would operate in the megawatt range um, somewhere in the neighborhood of 20,000 seconds. Uh, so about 10 times the typical performance for a Hall thruster. Uh, and I mean ISP performance. Um, anyway, I, I ended up over the summer living up in the Angeles National Forest. Part of it had burned out. And so, uh, you know, the National Forest Service wasn't, wasn't opening there. And I just kind of I just kind of camped there and sort of lived there for, for a couple of months while I, uh, while I worked at JPL in the daytime and took a shower at Caltech's gym. So that was sort of <laughs> interesting. It's difficult to be in graduate school and be poor. Um, right, so um, uh, that I think is something that we are tackling. And I mentioned you know, a minute ago, Ira, Dan, uh, Goble, definitely John Brophy. These are the kinds of people who are working on these problems. So whenever you think about the kinds of minds that are at work on uh, you know, these problems in electric propulsion, these are the, the, the people 
the human beings that sort of enabled Mission Black Dawn. Uh, and that is kind of a commentary on the time that we live in in UP mm -hmm. as well. To know that these kinds of human beings who are foundational to a field, um, I mean, to know that you can just go over the summer and kind of work with these guys is humbling. Um, it's intimidating, I, I, I would go so far as to say. Um, they're just incredible human beings, and it's, it's really neat uh, to be able to be in a time when we can go and, and be a part of that so directly. Yeah, I can imagine. Kind of going off of that, you know, now it's, and especially with the 50th anniversary of, of Apollo being last year, too, it's, it's a couple of contrasting times in terms of, like, the great minds of kind of starting spaceflight and, and how all of that kind of brought everyone together. And, and now it's a, you know, it's years down the line, but there's so many amazing minds just like really accelerating this whole process and you can go have a conversation with them and work with them, like you were saying. And I think that's, that's awesome. And that's so inspiring to actually see these guys on TV and, and, and read their books. I've been reading a lot of books over the summer on, like I read uh, Bob Manning's book on the Mars Curiosity Rover and, yeah. and I, I just finished uh, the Chasing New Horizons, which was which was about how all of New Horizons came together, and um, the, there were a couple of names in there of of scientists that I've actually like seen in telecons, and I'm like, wow, I'm reading this book where these people were fundamental in getting this mission from paper proposal to to an actual spacecraft, and now like I see their names in, in a yeah. telecon, and that's just so freaking cool. Um, there was it's very, very inspiring. There was this day, I mean, I think it must be probably, I'm, I'm, my nerd self at least, it must be my proudest day, right? The proudest day of my nerd self um, was uh, we had called uh, Ira in for a solar array issue that we were having at SSL. Um, oddly, or not surprisingly, I guess, in the hostile environment of GEO, we lose solar array strength sometimes. Full strength will go out. Oh. And um, we think that there's some wonky plasma physics going on there. We may get arcing between. Uh, leads maybe on some solar cells. I'm not. I'm not completely conversant with the problem, but I think that maybe, uh, maybe on track. Uh, anyway, we called Ira out because that's sort of uh, you know in the plasma physics universe, that's his uh, cup of tea. Uh, it used to be uh, at one point, and if it, if it still is. Um, and yeah, he. Uh, I'm sorry, I was getting to the proudest day of my nerd life. Uh, he he mentioned uh, to a whole conference room full of SSL engineers. Whenever he and I walked in together, he said. Oh, hello, everybody. You know, um, I, I came here with BJ, my student. I was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to melt into the floor. I can't believe that. Um, it was just really incredible. I don't know. Having say that, just, I don't know. It obviously stuck with me and obviously made an impression on me. I need to say one more thing just to, to be kind of respectful. Um, I, I don't, uh, you know, the, the EP community, just like every other community, you know, um, you know, we're a real group of honest to God, living, breathing human beings. Um, so um, I, I just have to say with uh, all the folks working out of JPL, I just want to say uh, that, uh, you know, that's just been my journey uh, was was uh, getting the JPL experience. The, the folks who um, also work on in the EP community, also work out at Glenn, um, have, have obviously, um, uh, you know, inspired us with, with similar accomplishments and things like that. you know they're they're just an amazing group of people um the sad fact is sarah uh, unfortunately in my path in my walk in my journey uh i just not yet have not yet had uh, the opportunity to, to kind of interface with them as much as as much as i would like so i don't want to uh, sound like i'm over politicizing anything i i just had an experience at jpl mm -hmm. people uh in our community have equally just 
wonderful, awe-inspiring experience of the glimpse. No, that's that's fair. Um, kind of circling back to okay, so so we were talking about the basically how how the the grid with ion thrusters degrades over time, um, and and a lot of the research that I was seeing when I was looking up this this topic was actually more materials research. Yeah. Um, and so I, I read a paper where people were exploring using the, like these self-healing materials so that they could adjust, uh, they could actually adjust the thruster and change the type of operating mode that it was in, yep. um, which is amazing. And, and that's that's apparently a thing that's been done and demonstrated on missions. And then there's also the idea of like plasma redeposition mm-hmm. as well. So is there, um, uh, yeah, which is- uh, there, There's a lot to unpack there. Um, mm-hmm. The uh, uh, the idea of using uh, a material that can change its shape in terms of changing the aperture um, characteristics on our optics uh, for gridded ion thrusters is truthfully something I have never thought of until the exact moment that it came out of your mouth. Um, <laughs> okay. That is that is really neat. That's a uh, I'm going to need a little bit of time actually personally to think about what that how that might be done and what that might look like because it, it really sounds fascinating. Um, there's even an argument. Uh, we we have some. Oh gosh, there. I got to talk through my way through this. We have something on the grids that we collect called. Uh, I well, I think Manuel just call it stray current, uh, but it's intercepted current. It's how much of the beam current is impinging on the grids. You have to remember that's electrical charge. That's measurable. Mm-hmm. That's a feedback variable for uh, an optimizing, self-optimizing sort of aperture. Can you? Can you kind of see that feedback and how that how yeah. work? I, that would be so cool. Anyway, man, I'll have to see if there's a student who would explore kind of how that would look. That's such a neat thing. Anyway, um, I'm sorry. I'm in just nerd heaven right now. Um, the, the materials research in terms of the, the shape change, I, I don't know. Um, other materials research, though, that you will see um, is uh, looking for materials that have a lower sputter yield. Uh, and the problem that we run into with the grids is you've got your your sandblaster operating, and you're trying to uh, you're trying to pass all of these uh, ions through this really thick uh, grid uh, material. It could be you know millimeters thick. It's it's from a from a particle perspective, it's infinitely long. Um, and if those trajectories aren't straight, right, that particle goes into what we call the barrel of the uh, of, of the aperture. And when it goes into the barrel uh, and, and digs in there, it sort of gores out material, just like a meteorite would uh, whenever it impacts the Earth's surface. Um, you can imagine what the surface of the Earth would look like if we were under constant bombardment from all of these stray particles intercepting the barrels of the, of the grids. And now you see why uh, grid erosion is such a problem. We're, we're, in fact, when we sputter material off, we're hitting the grids, the barrel material, so hard that we're ejecting, we're creating a, a plume of ejecta out into the beam that's being swept up into the beam and leaves the system. Uh, it is no longer there to provide its surface uh, sur- surface for conducting electricity, so to speak. Um, so that, that material just it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. The effect that we see in, in uh, grid ion thrusters, whenever we get uh, erosion like that, barrel erosion, is an increase in the size of the aperture and ultimately uh, the beams become, the beamlets can become defocused. Uh, so we, the, 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 uh, the reason that we call these uh, optics is because we are doing focusing, just not focusing on light. Hmm. Uh, we're, we're focusing ion beams with our optics. And this barrel erosion fundamentally undermines um, our, our, our engineering to do that. 
problem. So you can see why it's a problem. As beams become more and more defocused, you see this problem increases. Uh, your Earth, which is being bombarded for thousands and thousands of hours, uh, is continuing to now be bombarded more and more and more and more. Eventually, um, you start intercepting more current because the, the beamlets are now so defocused that you're just intercepting more straight current than you are focusing the beam anymore. At that point, it stops operating like a thruster and just becomes a resistor kind of. Not, not entirely, but <laughs> you yeah. get where I'm going with, it, with this. Uh -huh. it, it sort of loses its um, its its abilities as a propulsion device. That's probably a, a nicer way of saying it. Okay. Are there other ways that are uh, that have kind of been developed to mitigate that over time, or or is it something that's still a very new area of research and 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 kind of being developed? I think that I'm gonna have to think my way through this because I got a really good answer. Um, I would say that so far, um, everything that we've done to deal with the problem of barrel erosion and eventual failure of the grids, if you try to operate the thing out to time equals infinity, has been based on a parenting strategy of, you know, give the kid the best start you can in life and then just see what happens. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't mean that to sound flip, flippant, uh, even though, you know, I'm kind of making a joke, but that's really all we can do in terms of mitigation is really mm -hmm. clever design up front. So if we sort of give the grids the best start in life as engineers, give them the best start in life that we can, and then see what happens, um, you should definitely interpret that as what happens is invariably pretty darn good, um, because these things are real fantastic engineering devices. So I don't want it to sound negative. Um, I want to follow on that and say um, I would be interested in pursuing any ideas, com completely blue sky blue approaches entirely that you have to erosion mitigation, apart from giving the optics the best start that we can. Hmm. What else might you do? I mean, is it something where you want to incorporate one of these? shape altering materials would you think maybe about making the apertures uh, geometry variable wow that's a that's a tough one i don't know sarah that's a, you, you've led me into a into a completely unknown forest i'll say is that a good thing or a bad thing <laughs> i'll take that as a good thing it's me uh, hmm. yeah you, you spend you spend a lot of time with them and uh, with with these kinds of devices it's a really narrow field whenever you get your phd you're always sort of narrowing focus. I'm really, really focused on a handful of six or seven devices, and that's sort of my bread and butter in life, uh, is how these things work. Obviously, I have other interests. Um, but yeah, you think you know everything about them. So whenever, you know, you have an hour and a half conversation with somebody and you get to something, you say, well, geez, you know, I don't even know if there are other approaches to do that. What do you do other than good engineering up front? Is there a way to intervene during the mission and somehow, um, somehow change things for the better? I've never thought about any kind of an interventive um, hmm. measure. Well, it's interesting. I'll, have I'll to, think about it some more. Okay. I'll see if I can find anything <laughs> else on it and send it your way. Please, please do. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm curious to ask about testing. Uh, okay. So so how does, because I mean, most of, most of testing will at first kind of be done in, in an ambient environment, but it, are there ways that uh, these thrusters change in terms of uh, ambient performance versus operating in a vacuum? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And um, 
I think uh, another man who owns a field has launched another satellite. And whenever we, whenever we do ground testing, we characterize the ISP for these thrusters. And uh, at low power, and hull thrusters like a, uh, you know, BHD 100, SBT 100, something like that, the difference that you get between ground testing and in-space operation is negligibly small. Uh, so ground testing is really a great way to characterize the, the behavior of these small thrusters. But this man who owned this field uh, flew a, a much bigger thruster um, at, at, higher, at higher power. And uh, I have heard in my travels a compelling argument um, that um, that may have been associated with some differences, fundamental differences that, that uh, that kind of turn up in ground testing for high power hull thruster versus the reality of the endless vacuum of space. Hmm. Okay. Um, so yeah, there there are some very fundamental things that we as a community um, have have been diving into uh, about that, and unfortunately, um, I can only sort of comment on my uh, perspective very much from the outside on on all those issues. I have not. I know that the discussion is going on in the literature. In fact, there's a lot of, uh, if you look back in the uh, journal articles for the journal Propulsion Power for the last few years, you'll see a lot of this uh, hull thruster testing articles show up uh, from, a, from a couple of folks. And um, yeah, I, I think that that may have had something to do with some differences that were seen, some deviations that were not necessarily expected or, or even wanted. Okay, that's interesting. That's really interesting. Okay, another another question on testing. So, like with, with hull thrusters, there's mag coils, axial fields, and cathodes. Like, are there complications that come with trying to get all of those parts to play together nicely once it actually comes to making a system? And by a system, do you mean uh, assembling the, the EP subassembly? Yeah. Yeah, uh, making everything work together and play nicely. Um, yeah, some of the bigger issues I, I can uh, I can point to uh, you know another group I, I know I am acquainted with a, a situation where uh, a, an organization was uh, for the first time attempting to operate two hull thrusters uh, simultaneously using the same regulator. Um, we got some kind of a flash out sort of a thing uh, happened with the uh, with the pressure curve on the output pressure of our regulator. So the thrusters actually for a moment went out of spec uh, because we overpressured the thrusters oh. um, by doing this by doing this experiment. So that's kind of a that's kind of a real life in space honest about that happened issue with trying to make everything play nicely together. First time you try to do anything differently, anything that's not cookie cutter, it's gonna come back and bite you in ways that you don't even understand. Sarah, the thing that I think happened finally uh, on that investigation, we we embarked on a whole uh, fact-finding mission for how that what what in the heck happened because we had to explain it to our customer mm -hmm. um, I mean we got an alarm in the spacecraft at whatever o'clock in the morning kind of kind of a story right um, so we had to figure out why that happened and you want to know how hard it is to get everything to play together nicely when I left the problem when I stopped working on it and stopped you know charging to that time code so to speak the answer was actually that we frosted xenon out in, into the regulator because our demand was bigger. There was a pressure drop argument. Xenon is 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 stored as a supercritical fluid, so there's definitely an argument to be made 
that at some point on the PVT curve, whenever you're exhausting your xenon through this flow restriction, you are absolutely passing over some kind of a transition uh, where the xenon becomes a solid. Now, if the xenon becomes a solid, the volume of your gas is very different than what the ideal gas law or your gas modeling would tell you. And since your regulator design is based on usage of those gas modeling tools, your design tools fail. Your regulator is no longer a regulator at that point. It's, mm -hmm. it's not behaving for a moment in the way that it was designed to behave because it's fundamentally, it's, uh, its input variables are not within their design parameters. So uh, anyway, yeah, so that's a long way of saying, uh, you know, uh, that organization, uh, that team that I was uh, uh, affiliated with, um, they, uh, we did that and, and that's an example of how things, you know, will play not nicely together and they will play not nicely together in ways that you sometimes maybe even need like three years of thermodynamics um, wow. to, to okay. really, to, to creatively synthesize that, to mm -hmm. be at a point where you can creatively synthesize that as a solution. I don't think that, that uh, and, and I'm not, I don't think, I know for a fact that frosting out thing, I don't think that was something I came up with because that is 17 levels beyond my pay grade. That was just some <laughs> incredible, incredible engineering on the part of our subcontractor. I think that was actually a hope program, but uh, that, that team just incredible. So nothing but great things to say about that program and that team. So with all of the work that you've done, I don't know how many stories you can tell on this, but how many times have you blown things up? One time, uh, and there are a few <laughs> folks who, I don't know if maybe Addie told this question. I know there are a few folks who know this story. No, I just like asking people what they've blown up. <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> that is an ideal question. <laughs> I put this on here and then Addy was looking him over and he was like, this question might take you into a few hours or, you know, like a joke like yeah, that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, um, usually when you're testing electric propulsion thrusters, um, your failures uh, in testing are, are kind of, they're underwhelming, so to speak. Uh, whenever you have a failure, uh, usually it's some kind of a some kind of electrical failure. Usually a failure in the operation or testing of an electric propulsion thruster means the light goes out. Uh, that's, that's the way I heard one of the guys at the Air Force describe it. Um, so I've had a lot of, a lot of um, instances where the lights have gone out, sure. Um, a lot of that was whenever I was testing uh, down at the Air Force with SSL um, as a part of my work on the commercial side. Um, Unfortunately, I've also had some less than um, ideal uh, sort of failures, a little more um, spectacular failures, uh, if, you, if you want to call it that. So we were, um, I was part of a proposal, or rather a, a deliverable for DARPA, um, whenever I was working with SSL, exploring this problem of whether you could use the same working fluid for um, a chemical thruster as you could for an EP thruster. So the idea is that you want to use a, a hand-based or something, a monopropellant, and just decompose it over a catalyst, exhaust the gas, that's your resisto jet, or that's your uh, thruster, right? You also want to take that same fluid, de decompose it, and then run those gases through a hull thruster to do both. Um, we like xenon. Xenon is uh, the way that uh, a spacecraft integrator would want to think about it here, is uh, xenon makes for a thruster um, that is relatively thermally benign. Now you've already heard me say how misbehaved thermally a hull thruster is. So when I tell you that running molecular gases through a hull thruster is found like it just 
fundamentally thermally misbehaved. <laughs> I, I really want you to understand how thermally misbehaved uh, that situation can become. Uh, running those molecular gases through the hall thruster uh, is just absolutely uh, heats them up a lot more than, than the xenon does. Uh, and the reason is one that we can easily understand. Um, there are a lot of pathways uh, for energy to be radiated out of a molecule. Uh, you can break that molecule apart and have it recombined. That results in a, a loss of enthalpy. Uh, whenever, uh, whenever you do, I mean, a, it, it's a heat. It's a it's a heat load. Um, you can also excite and de-excite. There are just a lot of different recombinant pathways that end up turning out as heat. Whereas, yet, whenever you have an atomic xenon, what you've got is just a, a ball with a bunch of electrons floating around it. It doesn't have a lot of degrees of freedom. Okay. So introdu introducing all those extra degrees of freedom whenever you have a molecule and all the ways that it can bounce around, those extra degrees of freedom show up as heat. Um, so whenever you start running CO2 and things like that through these thrusters, they get darn hot. Um, they get maybe a little hotter than you, than you expect them to get. So the, the story that Addy is referring to is whenever I was working at Busick, we were testing this. And uh, I, I was with a technician there, and obviously he was there uh, kind of... Um, uh, working with their hardware and everything, but I, I really do have to kind of tell on myself because I was, I was kind of the test leader, and um, uh, you know, too much is just never enough, Sarah. It's just never <laughs> enough. <laughs> we were running the thruster, and yeah, I mean, sure enough, it was getting hot, and I wanted to see, you know, how I wanted to get some idea um, for for how long we were expecting, the meantime expected between failures and things like that, and I thought that I was going to do some, you know. Maybe I was going to do some accelerated life testing kind of um, on the back of the envelope. And, um, yeah, I kind of just kept telling the technician, you know, it's all right, it'll be fine, it glowed. You know, it was glowing. Big. <laughs> you know, I was, I was sort of, I didn't tell him. I just kind of, you know, let the test continue. And, yeah, sure enough, I ended up slagging the thruster um, completely. It, it melted catastrophically. Um, oh, that's brilliant. I love and that. It, and, it, and it really wasn't entirely totally mine. Um, so that was a little embarrassing, <laughs> but I guess humility is, is, um, essential. I, I, I hope I, ha I mean, I believe I have enough of it. I've done some pretty stupid things and that ranks pretty high up there in the stupid things. Yeah, I melted the thruster entirely. Did you get to keep like a commemorative, I don't know, piece of the melted thruster? Did you get a souvenir? Well, it wasn't entirely mine, and I, I, I have really strong opinions about that sort of thing. So no, I didn't do, didn't do it. Keep any keepsakes. That's fair. Not, not really my style. Very cool. Um, this this whole conversation has has been amazing. I, I just have a couple of last last minute questions. Absolutely. Um, so so one for for students who are listening to this and are really interested in electric propulsion. Are there any resources that you'd recommend them looking into in order to, to learn more about the subject and kind of dive deeper? Yeah, um, I would. Uh, so Manuel made his course notes. My teacher, my professor uh, at MIT made his, um, his, his resources, uh, his, his course notes available uh, over open courseware. Um, there are times whenever I'm preparing for my uh, electric propulsion lectures uh, and especially whenever I get to the, there's a section where we go over some of the deeper physics and hall thrusters. I pull up Manuel's notes from Google, mm. uh, from Google. Um, I mean, I, 
if you you could right now if you go to the MIT open courseware uh, look up you know courses 16.512 16.522 these are courses that I took uh, in in propulsion just generally as a graduate student and some of those course notes are are just right there um, so that's a great place um, we're getting to a point now where <clears throat> some other resources are, are kind of becoming um, a little more accessible as well and the reason I'm, I'm sort of hesitating is because a lot of what you're going to struggle with whenever you look for things in UP is some of the physics are areas of physics fundamentally that we don't focus on a lot in your undergraduate career um, there are things like plasma physics so if I'm asking you to go or if I'm, I'm kind of instructing you on how to learn more yourself about electric propulsion um, I would encourage you to be careful about what subject you're re researching to begin with. There's definitely some, some uh, great materials online uh, in terms of university resources. Uh, MIT OpenCourseWare is a great example where you can learn more about plasma physics. Um, those kinds of studies are what are going to really, really make you um, just an unstoppable force in the electric propulsion community. If that's where you want to go, if that's what you want to do, know the plasma physics. Another thing I would say, another pillar of this field, so to speak, that folks need to, uh, need to maybe focus on uh, is uh, your astrodynamics. Knowing how electric propulsion plays in and plays together with mission design, holy smokes. I mean, there's probably, um, I don't know, 200, 300 people maybe alive that, that really are truly deeply conversant with that kind of a field of study. If you wanna become a force in this community, those are the kinds of areas that I would really encourage you to go into. Um, there are a lot of us out here, uh, and, and uh, I'm not trying to discourage anyone because this was my path. How would I, how, why would I do that? I, I just got to tell you, if, if you're thinking that you want to come in and you want to build a better thruster, the field is still young, but we are getting to the point where there's a lot of a lot of folks out there. I would say a lot of you guys are out there now who are thinking, you know, I can build a bigger hull thrust or a better ISP hull thruster. I've got an incredible idea for. Um, you know, better magnetic nozzling on hull thrusters so that we can, um, uh, so that we can do better lifetimes. Uh, there are a lot of folks out there now who have the bit in their mouth. Just be aware. Uh, the field is becoming more competitive. But if you go into these kind of ancillary side areas and then see how they work in DEP so that you zoom out a little bit and get a bigger perspective of the field, that's how you're going to become a force. Hmm. Awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, it's very that's very good advice too. I appreciate that. Um, okay, so the the last question that I like to ask all of my guests is: so we've we've talked about things that have been blown up, <laughs> um, but is there uh, is there one other favorite story that you have from any of your experiences that that you want to share? Yeah, um, it was another. So Sarah, I do um, probably one of the most inspiring missions that I've that I've ever had an opportunity to be a, a part of was um, on a mission called Laddie, and uh, Laddie was the Lunar Atmospheric Dust um, and Exosphere Explorer. Maybe I think uh, it had two E's on the end. Uh, it may have been Lunar Environment Explorer or something like that. Um, anyway, Laddie, the the propulsion subsystem was built by uh, Space Systems Loral. Uh, whenever we whenever I was there. And uh, uh, a gentleman named Jeff Baldwin, uh, really, uh, really fantastic, uh, great mind, just a really, really nice guy. 
anyway, so um, uh, Jeff had the, uh, the, the misfortune of working with me. And <laughs> had the uh, misfortune of working with me. And then uh, we, we, would, uh, we would go um, in the afternoons occasionally back and forth um, to Ames. And, you know, he would have to deal with the fact that I'm a big nerd and um, kind of generally an obnoxious human being. And uh, uh, so I appreciate that from him. I mean, he, he was a, a wonderful person to work with. Um, anyway, yeah, we would go over there and have meetings at Ames and kind of nerd out about the propulsion system for Laddie. And um, uh, the, the, the really neat thing about the story is not any particular moment or any particular experience. It was the fact that I lived through um, watching a piece of uh, human engineering um, being built on the floor with people's hands. Uh, I watched that and was a part of that and participated in that. And uh, it's up there on the moon forever. I mean, I feel like uh, I, at some point, at some level, I, I made an effort to kind of connect with uh, with that that hardware, but to a bigger extent, sort of the spirit of uh, the hardware. And um, you know, I feel like part I'm a part of that. It was a really neat experience to be a part of something that's sort of forever enshrined, uh, forever entombed, if you will, on on the moon, even if it's in atoms and little bits. <laughs> That's that's a really lovely story, and I I appreciate that that too. And I I, I can kind of resonate with that too. I think that's how um, you know my, myself and a lot of the people that worked on the Phoenix mission now kind of feel like a part of ourselves is like enshrined on this tiny cubesat that will um, that's now in orbit um, and will eventually be um, disintegrated into molecules in the atmosphere after some time. But sure. yeah, it is, it is a really unique feeling, definitely. So I, I, fact, I love that story. I've got, to, I've got to circle all the way back around to something that you said so early on about uh, the fact that space feels more accessible to you. You have accessed space. I mean, whenever you say that you've gotten that feeling for every human intent, every human ramification that has, that means that you have access to space for some time, a, a part of you is, is there, a part of you resides there. Um, that is impossible. It's impossible that we live in a time where human beings feel themselves in space uh, in the way that you do, and you're 20 years old. I mean, yeah. you haven't even gone through a phase where, never mind. Um, anyway, <laughs> yeah, I mean, good Lord, it's just amazing. I, I was gonna say something uh, a little nicer and you haven't even gone through a phase where you give up on the field and frustration and just say you know nothing yeah. nothing ever gets done in aerospace it's so slow and I felt like maybe that was a phase we all kind of went through but mm -hmm. you're 20 something years old and for a little while some part of you was in space that's not insignificant yeah it does it definitely blows my mind you know I mean when, when you asked me about what got me into space in the first place it's like you know heck even a couple of years before I got to ASU, so like seven, eight years ago, um, you know, I didn't think that this would ever really be something I was doing. And, and so, yeah, that's, um, it is a very cool thought. Anyway, I, I really do need to let you go. Uh, I think the family and I are going to go down to uh, Powell Campground in the Prescott uh, National Forest. And uh, there's a, a spring out there and there's just huge blackberry bushes growing all around the spring. And the blackberries are on right now, so I was going to take the kids out there and go pick blackberries for the afternoon. Oh, that's so, so nice. <laughs> get out of the house. Yeah, but thank you, Sarah. This has uh, really been very good for me. Um, oh, good. I'm, I'm glad. Very glad. Awesome. Well, let me let you go here. Um, 
let, let's let's make sure that we keep up over years and decades if necessary. Yeah, you too. This has been really fun. Well, thank you, Sarah. Have a good day. Yeah, you too. Have fun with the have fun picking your blackberries. <laughs> With that, our series on electric propulsion has come to an end. A huge thank you again to Dr. White for sitting down with me for a few hours to explore so many really cool areas on this topic. This was really enjoyable, both on a technical level as well as on just in terms of a meaningful conversation. Now I will leave you to go and build a rocket ship fort of your own to explore the stars, because you are never too old to build a spaceship fort. I am 23, I still make forts, and I'm pretty darn proud of it. Tune in every other week for more episodes of The Art of Space Engineering. If you've been enjoying this podcast and you want to support it, please share these episodes with your friends. And don't forget to follow this podcast on Facebook for additional updates. Here's looking forward to future adventures and the lessons learned from them. Cheers. Cheers.